Welcome, uh, listeners, to another installment of Ignore the Noise podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Nick Hansen, and joining me as always is uh, Matt Rustin. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It is uh, great to be awake, having a cup of coffee, and look forward to making this podcast. Likewise. It's uh, finally winter here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, I got a picture today from my parents that I don't know if this is the same in Rochester, that there's like three, four inches of snow on the ground currently. Um, at least where I'm in, Rochester's a, a fairly large city area-wise that's uh, in the northeast area of Rochester here. Uh, we still just got a dusting. I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it's a quarter of an inch or anything like that. Wow. Um, sometimes it can be hard to tell, though, um, that how much snow we got because the ground could still be warm as it is here. It was just, you know, high 60s um, a week or so ago. So the warm, the ground is still warm, and uh, some of it's already melted off. So not, not too bad where I'm at. Fair enough. I should have prefaced too. It's from uh, about three hours north of Rochester. So I was overgeneralizing <laughs> to the whole state. So it does make sense that there's a little less down there. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh. But also for our listeners, just a heads up, we are switching our format a little bit. So we're Matt and I are going to aim for 45 to an hour in terms of content per episode. And then we're going to try and aim for weekly episodes as well. Um, and before we dive into the topic today, I there was some there's been a lot of news over the last two weeks since we last talked. One of the big ones, basically, I think the the day or two after our our episode aired and we released it, um, you know, we'd been talking heavily about COVID, about the vaccine. Fantastic news came out that the Novavax vaccine had been approved for I think full I, I think full use in Indonesia, um, and I'll admit. Uh, I, I've taken a stance of not being anti-vaccine, but wanting to wait for the, the right vaccine and a lot, uh, not a lot, but enough safety data. Um, and for, for those of our listeners that are um, hoping, wishing that I get vaccinated, I did admit to Matt that if and when the Novavax vaccine is approved in the United States, that is uh, a vaccine I'd be interested in against COVID. It's a little different delivery mechanism. It's a subunit protein delivery, and it's designed such that the spike protein that it generates is intended to stay in the arm of the individual who receives it with without any movement throughout the body. I know in Pfizer and Moderna, they are saying that that isn't the case. I'm not necessarily personally buying that. Um, and there's been solid data. I think it was 90% efficacy in the the stage three clinical trial they ran in Mexico. Um, and they, they did say with some of the primate portion of the studies that there was some potential to deliver sterilizing immunity. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion, um, but that's uh, interesting to say the least. So just wanted I to share that. I think it's good that there's there's uh, they're still developing options so that people have choices, and I, I think that's uh, an important aspect of that. That um, you know those immunologists, scientists, and labs are still kind of working to um, progress um, in in a delivery method or um, the efficiency of, of a vaccine, and there's not just a singular option. So that's that's great to hear for um, our many discerning listeners. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're up to maybe 10 or so. So hopefully there'll be uh, consistent listeners. But uh, with that too, Pfizer came out with a, a COVID-19 pill. Merck has one too. Sure. Um, so I'll admit personally, I'm hoping that that only increases our uh, comfortability as individuals and 
as Americans and worldwide, uh, obviously in terms of preventing serious illness, death from COVID, uh, reducing the burden on our hospitals and so forth. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But uh, if you want, do you want to dive into that any further or do you want to sort of no, switch gears right into personal liberty? No, I, th- I think personal liberty is great. That's just uh, great to hear uh, news that you've updated us on. And I, I you know, I just, th- that can't be anything but good. So we can, yeah, let's dive into personal liberty, the subject matter for the day. Agreed. So I, 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 I was doing some research beforehand, so I, I'm okay. taking notes today okay. so I can follow all of your points. I came in prepared, um, but uh, and I'm going I'm going way back in time, but I'll, I'll throw a quote out there and we'll sort of see where it goes. Um, but Benjamin Franklin once said, he who would trade liberty for some temporary security deserves neither liberty nor security. I, I thought that was a fitting quote, especially for whatever conversation, whatever direction we end up taking today. Sure. Um, but I think um, no matter what, in the framing of this conversation, I expect, and I could be totally wrong, that you're going to come at it, especially from a point of accountability to others in some sense, and our social responsibility on a grander sense. Whereas in many ways, um, personal liberty, uh, you know, even looking at the definition of liberty, it is your right to choose to do whatever you please to do. And if we, if we followed that to a T in society, we'd probably have nothing but chaos. Yeah, it would, uh, would, it would definitely, um, I think it would be a hyper version of kind of the United States um, if, if there was some true, true, um, realization of absolute liberty, which is what I would call that. And, and, and something, um, Nick actually knows about me is that I, I don't prefer, um, kind of absolutes or kind of the outlier extremes of positions or thought at all. Um, that doesn't mean I'm always aiming for the center. Um, but I, I am eclectic in my views and, and, try to gather as much different information to have of you. The answer for me in most of these situations is it depends. It depends on the context, right? So um, uh, an idea of an absolute liberty is just not something that could really sustain. Um, It is um, a cousin to anarchy, in my opinion, um, because um, there, there have to be societal rules. And, and since the beginning of time, there have always been societal rules and uh, consequences, um, good or bad, for action. So um, whether that's, those actions are taken in the, the vein of personal liberty or not, um, there are outcomes and consequences for those behaviors, whether civilly imposed or naturally imposed, right? So that's, that's, that's kind of my position is uh, from what your statement was. But there's a lot of nuances Definitely. to it. And, and I can tell you just as maybe a teaser and Nick and I will probably do this throughout uh, our series of podcasts is like, hey, this would be maybe a great idea. And I, I can think a, a podcast about the founding fathers would be 
an outstanding podcast or series of podcasts. So, you know, uh, if any of our listeners have ideas or thoughts that they would also like to have us talk about or consider, you know, please, please message us and, and let us know because we're, we're interested in having and talking about conversations that uh, the everyday people have and, and then kind of uh, putting our thoughts out there to, to get through the noise so that people can understand what their position is. Definitely. So, I mean, there's so many different routes we could go on the Liberty front and I, I hate to, I want to push us. Do we want to start with like free speech or the right to bear arms? Something that's not COVID. Cause I, I think COVID yeah. brought a lot of this to light, but we, we beat COVID to death. Yeah. Um, and I'll admit, so living in a, in a gun toting state like South Dakota, where darn near anyone over 18, I think can, can have a weapon. And I, I heard too, through the grapevine, I don't have a source. I didn't actually look this up that uh, there's a federal bill potentially, or maybe it's not a federal bill, but a case coming to the Supreme court that could, if they ruled in favor would allow for conceal and carry to really broaden across America. Um, I don't have any more context for that. I can look that up. Um, but I'll admit, I've told Matt this before, um, you know, right to bear arms, it's pretty, pretty high profile topic in our world. And I'll admit, you know, there's a Shields here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that I'm pretty sure it's 75% of individuals in that store. And that that's probably a high number. And I overgeneralize at times, but there's probably I feel comfortable knowing that there's a high percentage of individuals likely concealing and carrying a firearm in that store at any given time. And my argument for that is, um, you know, we have these cases across America, you know, in the 2000, in the 21st century, mass shootings to some degree, which are, are horrible, devastating events. And I do take some comfort in knowing that if someone decided, hey, I'm going to go into this store when I'm in there, when anyone's in there, that there are probably 18 people who would be able to defend themselves against said individual on behalf of the whole store. And, and I, I know you and I have talked previously about a situation um, like that. And my position would be more that um, everybody would be a lot better off if nobody in the store had guns. Um, now, I, I will disclose, um, I've personally come through a transformation. I'm from Oklahoma, and I personally uh, had very conservative views growing up. So it's, uh, I think Nick and I kind of had uh, a similar perspective um, uh, about some of these things, or we've experienced that perspective as we've kind of grown up and become men. Um, so I grew up doing hunter safety courses. Um, all of my firearm experience was uh, revolved around um, hunting. So it wasn't anything for personal protection or anything like that. And that wasn't something that was necessarily um, promoted, but uh, I did, I do have experience with, with guns, um, pistols, rifles, shotguns, um, all of that. And at this point, I don't, I no longer, I don't own guns or hunt or anything. Um, and, and I think that that we, and this was where it could tie into the founding fathers and what their intent was, um, but with the second amendment. Um, so, so the idea of being able to defend yourself and, and why, um, and, and what the likely outcome is, I think those are kind of the considerations that I think about. Um, and then again, of course, you know, the founding fathers, some hundreds of years ago, um, writing some of their perspectives. Um, and then of course that gets into, 
um, is, is a document or um, a tenant, some kind of living um, construct. So like thinking about the constitution, the Bible, some of those are those living texts or um, are those just kind of in stone in the time. And then, you know, that the, the rules should be carried out literally indefinitely. I don't know. I mean, I have my own perspectives and I'm sure we'll get into those. Well, yeah, lead, lead off with that. I know when we initially had this conversation, um, one, I, I love the way you describe yourself as a recovering um, conservative, conservative, if you're okay with me saying that. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to share that for our listeners. Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned that there's some portion of the Second Amendment that you believe within a formed uh, united coalition that that should be more so the case. And, uh, and I'll admit, um, you know, I, I think it is important for individuals in the United States to have that ability to bear arms, obviously, in a responsible manner. Again, I think your your point is, if we had no guns, we wouldn't have the cases of, of shootings, whatnot, etc. I think, you know, there's a couple of pitfalls there. One, the government essentially can do whatever it dang well pleases. Whoever, whoever does have the guns has that power. Um, additionally, you know, if someone does manage to acquire a firearm, then, you know, via black market, some illegal means under, under that law or institution, everyone's sort of screwed. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things to consider within that. Um, um, I want to clarify my comment that I, I don't know that I believe that there should be absolutely no guns, right? I, I don't I don't know if that's possible. Um, looking at you know Australia or New Zealand that they kind of had this buyback and and got rid of a lot of the guns. Um, I don't know what that effort would take in general and in a, in a society that um, wants to cooperate with that. I think it would currently be almost impossible in the United States when you have so many people that oppose that. And, and I just don't think that that is currently a battle worth waging um, relative to all of the other major issues we have going on. Um, I think that the way that the Second Amendment is written is a uh, great proof of kind of the importance of needing a lib living document. Um, you know, back then that was kind of cannonballs and muskets and things like that. And um, no matter how many AR-15 someone has, um, they're, they're simply just not going to be able to protect themselves from current day government arsenals. And, and um, but that being said, I would never want to take society's away, um, ability away to form a militia or a well-formed militia, which uh, I understand that context as being like an army, like a state-run army. So that wouldn't be like about uh, guys, you know, drinking beer and, and talking about taking the government. Back. It, it would literally be um, think of your national guard at a state, your state national guard, something like that, where you're drilling and you have rankings and, you know, um, outside of that, those guns and weapons are really held for those purposes. Um, many of those people are not taking their, um, those weapons and walking around openly, um, uh, because the, an event doesn't exist, um, currently. And so, so, but they do get to train and prepare themselves. I, I totally buy into that. Um, I think it is over in England. Um, Another reason I think is interesting is because sport hunting is such a big, um, uh, big piece of just human 
um, progress that that to be able to hunt and gather um, and provide food for yourself. And um, I think that in, in England, they have kind of reserves or, or camps where you can have your guns and go hunt wild game. And I think that that is perfectly fine from a sporting perspective. Um, it's It would be regulated. Um, so there's, you can't take the guns off the premise. And so the idea would be um, in the end to not be walking around, having a, a bunch of people walking around uh, with, with ammunition, guns, um, and then kind of to touch back about people having uh, weapons or not. I mean, Chicago is absolutely the, the, the best example where weapons are not um, legal there, but in the surrounding communities, it, it's, it's very, very easy to just get a gun. You can go out of state and just bring it back. And so um, I would say that there are probably a fair number of probably law-abiding citizens in Chicago that own guns illegally. And it's not just kind of the idea of, um, you know, poor minorities and drug dealers that have all the guns. Um, having a gun in Chicago is illegal. So both of those people, um, however they acquired them legally outside of city limits or illegally inside of city limits, once you're in city limits, it's illegal. Um, and that's that's kind of the downfall. It has to happen on a much mac larger macro level to remove the guns. Uh, if you don't do that, then the rules are kind of watered down and meaningless. So that's, well, and that's, an, that's an interesting case study too, in a place where they have banned guns and guns still appear. And, um, you know, I, I think in many ways, you know, it, it's cherry picking to say Chicago is an outlier, but they are an interesting case study in that there is a ton of gun violence yes. uh, on the weekends, the murders. It's it's horrific. It's really it's truly yep. sad. Um, and I've when jo I've, I've had some job opportunities come up that, you know, maybe in Chicago, I know without a shadow of a doubt I would not live in Chicago. I don't think I could handle <laughs> a city of that size, right, let right, alone. Right you know, just maybe catching a stray bullet when you're walking down the street. I don't think that's normal, but that that's like, that's a concern. And I heard, uh, I was listening to another podcast and I heard there was a story. So there was a, a case of a, of a shootout in Chicago. They had 70 bullets fired between these two groups that were engaged in quote unquote mutual combat. One person died and no charges were filed because it was, so mutual combat is essentially same as how they define a a fist fight. If you and I were to decide, Hey, we're just going to duke it out, which I don't think I'd take you on given that you have two <laughs> inches on me, you know, maybe 15, 20 pounds, depending on the day. Um, I, th I think I might lose that one. I, I just, I, I, it's just amazing that those storylines even pop up. I know that's an outlier again, but it's just, it's a weird world that we live in. Well, I think it speaks to a truth um, about the fighting thing that you said you 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 wouldn't want to necessarily um, fight me. You know, um, I, I'm just not a fighter, uh, like a fist fighter. I would defend myself if I needed to. But the idea is, is I think we would do better in society in general if we could just um, de-escalate things, which I, in my opinion is a lot of the... Um, a lot of the ideas around reforming the police departments and things like that is, is de-escalating things or handling things from a different perspective than say a stick or carrot type of mentality. Um, and I know when I've been personally confronted by situations, even though I'm larger than, than uh, a fair amount of people, um, that I don't know 
the rest of the context, what that person's been through. I don't know who is with them or, you know, anything like that. So I would personally just try to de-escalate things as much as possible um, in that respect. And I think that if we spent more time focusing on uh, our communication skills, our introspective skills as, as just a people, and especially the United States, um, extremely um, empathetic type of, of perspective would help us to, to get where we need to be without any kind of violence or force or, or not any, but it would just reduce it. It would mitigate it so much that um, guns wouldn't be such, such a, a felt necessity. And I say yeah, felt necessity because I, I think it's a feeling. I don't think that, that a lot of people, I, I don't know how many people think that there really would win against the government if, if that came up. If martial law came in and the government came in with tanks, I don't know how many people think they would really stand a chance. Yeah, I think in the in the only case where you truly stand a chance, like we'd be talking borderline civil war, secession, where you'd have states against the federal government in a sense. And um, going back to, I just want to touch on, so from a police reform standpoint, obviously there have been some, I'll call them, live experiments in this regard and a number of communities have actually voted to refund their police force not to say that reform didn't work um but i i think you're right in that there is a comfort probably as an officer knowing you have a weapon that can that can end a situation and protect you to some degree and we've seen where that has gone wrong we're all human and i can't imagine um being in that situation, especially given, you know, if you think about the amount of training, someone who's like special operations in the military goes through mm -hmm. in order to not make said mistake, because mm -hmm. if they do it, it is their life. And I think, so I, this is coming via Jocko Willink, but his argument, um, and are you familiar with Jocko at all? I'm not, he's I'm not. He's a former military guy. Um, I think he's out in California. He was on Rogan. As you can tell, I listen to a lot of Rogan. But um, he's big on on leadership, especially from the, the Navy SEALs and uh, military perspective. And his argument is that individuals who are working as police officers, they simply aren't trained enough and consistently enough throughout the job. Because when you think about you know, one, I have the utmost respect for anyone who puts on that uniform, goes out on a daily basis to truly protect us and the people who are doing the job the right way because they are putting themselves oftentimes in harm's way. Um, but I, I, it's, it's hard to imagine. You never know what you're walking into in any given situation. And you could very well encounter something you've never seen before. People who are out of their minds and there, there really isn't a textbook class, especially, um, you know, if you went through three months of training or whatever it may be to necessarily prepare you for that. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree um, with that, that perspective from um, thinking about how much training these, these men and women receive. And, and I would lump in EMT, firefighters, um, uh, all of those that are kind of first responder type um, vocations i think they need a lot more um training um and, and I, I do want to say i also respect and i'm very very thankful for all of the efforts uh, um, that they put out and, and help us with especially because so much of it is um every day that we don't see and um 
you know, there's just not enough thank yous to go around for those people. So uh, like you, thank you for that. Um, I would say that it, it, it's a cross section of what the job for a first responder really is. You know, part of it is you've got to be like, um, a psychologist um part of it is you're you're a social worker part of it is <clears throat> you are kind of an enforcer at times um and you you might need to take action um I think that, again, to your point about how much training they get versus how much training, say, a lawyer would get um, or a military person would get um, or even a social worker would get relative to police officers or fire persons that might only complete um, a two year um, program and, and then get in. I, I think those opportunities are becoming it's more rigorous to get in. So, so you might still have to go complete a four-year degree or something like that. Um, but I, I think that's kind of approaching it from what's the bare minimum instead of what is the extremely high standard for um, this crucial role within our society. Um, I would say as far as um, police violence um, and mishaps that occur in those very acute and emotionally charged situations, you know, again, I think that the, the guns don't help a ton uh, if you take those situations and remove everybody's guns, um, I think that, um, you know, the police would have to rely on um, kind of de-escalating more so than, than having that, uh, that firearm or that, that weapon to end it quickly. Um, I think that, you know, you can look at other countries and look at the correlation between gun ownership and, um, and violence from uh, from police um and i think that i mean there's probably cases both ways where that shows where um police who don't have guns you know don't aren't as effective but i think there's more cases where they are as just as effective and so um i guess as a general rule you know you can always find a statistic or a study that could potentially support your case it's just i think people need to take a bigger look at um how many studies and 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 all of the nuances about those studies because there's not a lot of um, exact comparison, right? You have to say it's it's like this in this regard. The Chicago study is an example um, when people will promote uh, the, the the high violence in Chicago, but there's the but guns are illegal. You just have to ask that next question, but why? You know. Well, and I think thinking about it, root cause analysis too. Um, for it, you know in order for someone to even be in that situation with an officer in a negative context where there's a misunderstanding factors aside, what law were you breaking and why, how, how did we even get to that point now? Is that, you know, I, I don't even know. Can we say, is that drug related in, in a majority? Is it, you know, due to the fact that we do have some pretty, I would say, you know, in America, especially with current inflation, I, I can't imagine um, being in poverty right now, how difficult that would be to manage life from an income perspective and to make that work. Not, not trying to correlate that necessarily to drugs, but that is a way to make more money fast. And the way I, I say that with the context, I'm watching Narcos. Mexico, oh. <laughs> which is on Netflix. So that, that yeah. that's kind of on my mind. And it's it's interesting. I mean, we, we do have these shows that glorify it, but it's very interesting to see, you know, how this came to be, how that worked its way. And the US, it really was the consumer that drove that. 
and that's true. probably I think continues that's still to true be today. So. Yeah, I think that's yeah. still true today. So, uh, I mean, yeah. oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was, I was going to potentially segue, depending on what you want to do in, you know, in terms of, well, I'm going to go a different way. So in Philadelphia, there is a, um, a new, I, I don't know if it's a law or an ordinance passed that essentially police are no longer going to stop people for minor traffic violations. Yep, Whereas yep. if you have something blocking your, uh, you know, hanging from your rearview mirror, your yep. taillight out. Absolutely. Personally, I think that's actually a fantastic way to sort of, it, it, for most people, I assume they are PO'd if they get pulled over and it's like, I have a headlight out and it's like, well, you know, I think I smell something in your car. Right. You know, th- there's weird things that can happen and there, there are bad apples out there. I'm not saying that's the norm, but um, I think being able to, separate that odds are if you have a taillight out you may or may not you know you're likely not going to cause an accident necessarily because of that it, it increases your odds but um i think you're a pretty low risk overall so i i just wanted to say i think that's an awesome uh step the city of philadelphia is taking but i have um that may be replaced by cameras and artificial intelligence in terms of identifying those cases and then you'll just receive like an automatic ticket at home as opposed to ever having interacted with an individual yep and they do they do some of that with like um tolls if you do if you fly through a toll um and you don't pay it that you know they can video snap your your license plate and then send you a nice ticket um a couple of things i would say about that one um i think in the United States, in my experience, a lot of that has to do with um, a lack of knowledge or an ignorance. And when I say that, um, that's not just um, for one group of persons. I think it's across the board. So I think people, <clears throat> uh, let's say tickets or minor traffic stops or anything like that, it's kind of an ignorance of the law. Um, but I think that on law enforcement, um, there, there might be that that situation or, or where you, where you don't know why you're doing these things, you're just enforcing the law because you were told to. Um, and I think that the police, um, could, if they reflected a little bit more, um, maybe advocate for those people that are getting, um, kind of tickets, um, for, for things, um, like parking tickets, headlight out, things like that, um, where, or, uh, the the search uh, stop and search the frisk and search that was big in Philadelphia as well and then I believe they've stopped doing that and and that was was that New York too I, the one Under I'm more Blasio. familiar with is 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 uh, Philadelphia I'm a little bit more okay. familiar with that that situation and I'm sure that it is uh, among different states or cities probably been um, banned as well but but why they're doing it and and there have been a lot of fascinating studies um, out there about the correlation between um, revenue um, from from some of these. Um, processes as far as taking people stopping and searching people but then also who these predominantly impact you know what i mean so um, is it a person of color um is it someone um that would be poor i know that's a relative term but um someone on the lower end of the income spectrum um or are they going and policing these same people um or these same situations in affluent and in kind of more caucasian or anglo areas as well and what is the correlation so are, are they hitting the suburbs like the 
the inner cities. And I was going to ask too, do you know? So I've, again, heard this anecdotally, you know, people talking about end of month, watch out for cops because they're trying to fill their quotas for tickets. Is, is it a problem of how we're measuring police performance as opposed to how the society's functioning in terms of, well, how many tickets did you write? Because this shows you pulled over this many people or checked in. So you weren't just you know, hanging out on the job, not responding to anything. Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, as most answers, I would say it depends. It depends on the, the players and the motives of the persons um, kind of promoting different initiatives, rules or laws. Um, I think that there very much are areas that can, can see um, policing in such a way to generate revenue because there's a lot of money I, I just saw on Facebook and my community that people were upset about getting certain parking tickets and they were complaining about things like expired tabs that they had parking on the wrong side of the street and getting like a, a parking ticket was $86. So, you know, at $86 a whack um, and one person had three tickets for three violations. So you're at like almost what, 250 bucks um, times, you know, a thousand people in, in say a month or something like that. Um, now you're talking about $250,000 that you've potentially generated um, for your, your service. And I, I think that understanding why, why these initiatives, is, is it really, is it really reducing crime? Is it really reducing parking violations um, or, or is it generating income and disparately towards certain persons. I mean, one of the greatest um, statistics that I see is, you know, half or over half of um, people in prison or people being arrested or people killed by peace, uh, police officers um, are, are persons of color, but they tend to represent uh, at least nationally about 14% of the population. So th there's, there's something else going on there that needs to be addressed. And at least from my perspective, that's why it would be mo more important for that heavy training in kind of the social services or the psychology. Um, I think that that would take us a long way for those police officers to know why they're doing what they're doing and they could potentially offer the solutions that haven't presented themselves yet. I, so I, I have a proposal, you know, being a non-politician. And so additional news that came out this week, uh, there's a Republican led bill um, to federally legalize marijuana. Okay. One, I think this would address the revenue portion in terms of we need to generate tax dollars um, in order to maintain local infrastructure such sure. that you wouldn't need to charge for these minor violations. Um, and I think in uh, Colorado, I don't know if you've been out there at all, if you've been yeah, out there recently, uh, the area is absolutely exploding with growth. It's, it's somewhat insane. Um, I think that is in large part attributed to the the legal cannabis, um, the, the money that they're generating. I know in some places there have been issues with where do those tax dollars actually go after they've been generated. But I do think one, it could generate tax dollars Two, um, there are a number of individuals who have been incarcerated for, you know, possession of a substance that marijuana, you know, it's legal in some States, it's not legal in some others. And there are people doing some pretty significant jail time from what I understand for those. And then there are people, other places, you can go to Colorado and 
you can enjoy it totally fine. No one's going right. to, you know, you're not going to go to prison so forth. Um, and that's, that's a, that's another high profile issue that personally I would support federal legalization. I, I'm curious your thoughts. So I'll say I haven't, it's been a while since I've been to Denver. Truly it has, but I'll say that um, one of the, one time I went, maybe it was even the first time I went, um, I was about 21 years old and we went to, I was in technical school at the time for computer networking and we went to visit uh, Cisco out there. And that was um, 21 years ago. And at that point, they were still seeing extreme rapid growth. And they were attributing a lot of people from, you know, Southern California that were moving out to the Denver area, because the cost of living was less, they still had a lot of amenities and things. So I, I would say that that growth in Denver or the, the Colorado in general has been going on way before cannabis was legal. And I think that it would still follow that trend if we kind of looked at the last 20 years of population growth in, in the area. Um, that being said, uh, I'm also pretty suspect or skeptical of any GOP bill um, that, that would give something to someone like even liberty to, to enjoy recreational, uh, marijuana, because I, I would want to know what else it's tied to, um, what it is preventing if it's not gone through. Um, I don't think it's a standalone bill. I'd, I'd have to look it up. Uh, and, and I think like you're saying, just in general, what are those revenues um, being used for. And there, I think a key to having a federal um, law codified that, that states it, it is legal would help those dispensaries and those business owners um, get their funds processed through banks legitimately a little bit more easily and that they could also contribute maybe to charities and, and other um not for profits that, that those businesses deemed vital or important. And I think that that's missing. And, but I agree. I think it's a great opportunity to have tax revenue come in. Um, I think that, you know, you could have the educational systems, the police departments, the, those areas that might be experiencing um, some budget gaps uh, would, would really be helpful. I think also there could be a little bit of a fight, but it would be beneficial for the for-profit, um, prison systems, because if you go through and take out, you know, a million people, uh, th that's, that's a revenue stream for a lot of businesses. And I mean, that's for another topic, but the, the, my perspective is the for-profit prison systems are just horrible. They're, they're a dredge on society. Um, and if a for business profit, at least in the United States is, um, you, you sometimes have to go make your market. You know what I mean? You're driven by profit. And so um, you're, you are vested in what the laws are to keep that population coming in uh, to your, to experience your service. And it is disproportionately poor people and people of color. So um I think there's a correlation there uh, between the impacts of our laws, our policing, our services, the perception of those services for people uh, in, in the, that poverty range uh, of the socioeconomic spectrum and people of color. So I, I think it could address a couple of things there. Yeah. Liberty. So do you, do you trust Forbes at all? I looked it up because, you know, I know, as you said, you have some GOP uh, apprehension. 
And I'll admit I have um, a little Democrat apprehension when it comes to, and this is going to sidebar a bit, if spending was going to solve all of our problems, I, I think we have a fiscal spending problem in America. And if, if simply printing dollars solved all of our social issues, it, we would have printed all the money, solved all the problems, and we, we should be good if that were the solution. I, I think from a governmental standpoint, we need to take a different approach or perspective that actually looks at, okay, these issues we have, you know, if, if they're a legitimate issue, what is the root cause? How do we address it? I, you know, as we were talking about federally legalizing this, this solves a lot of problems and generates actual GDP in America without, because I think, so there's an investing firm I follow. I, I might've mentioned this Hedgeye um, risk management. They're based in Connecticut. They had a, a conversation, uh, the founder and another guy who wrote a book really regarding deflation. And he mentioned, I think, and I, I'm pulling this out of thin air, I can, I can find the article or the, the conversation to cite it. But he said, I think we spent $126 trillion over like the last 40 years to generate $46 trillion in GDP growth, which is why, you know, we have a growing deficit that if it ever comes to a head someday, I, it, it, it's interesting. I remember people talking about it when I was in middle school and high school that, hey, you may have, you may owe something someday. And uh, it'll be interesting if we get to that point. But it's weird as a almost 25-year-old thinking, hey, this could come to a head. But I digress. The bill itself, uh, if you trust Forbes' article from five days ago, um, it's come out as an alternative to Democrats' efforts. So I, I don't see where it differs there. But it would federally reschedule marijuana, create a regulatory scheme, um, it would impose a 3.75% excise tax. It would be treated similarly to alcohol, um, which is an interesting comparison too, because I, I personally think in many ways, alcohol is almost more poisonous and detrimental to our society. Um, and then the FDA, I believe, so it says it would be limited in its regulatory authority it could prescribe serving sizes, certify state medical cannabis products, and approve and regulate pharmaceuticals derived, but it couldn't ban the use of cannabis or its derivatives. And then uh, it would be advertising would be restricted. 21 years and older would be legally entitled to consume recreationally. And then federal cannabis convictions with non or with nonviolent records would be eligible for expungement, which I, I think would be fantastic for anyone who's incarcerated right now that has nonviolent offenses that, you know, truly shouldn't be there. I, I truly hope for their sake that this passes so that they can be free. They, they deserve that liberty, especially, you know, if, if there are places where people can enjoy this legally, um, I know that, you know, at the time you did knowingly violate a law, but I think we, um, we could also evaluate our sentencing standards in America in, in some degrees, but that's a, that's a brief summary of what they, the 116 page bill uh, surmises. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will definitely, you know, investigate that a little bit, um, you know, after our podcast here, because I'm interested in, in a federal um, law that, that does again, legalize marijuana. I, I feel similarly to you that, that alcohol is potentially more detrimental to society 
um, than than cannabis would be. I don't um, I don't see too many studies that are uh, I don't see doctors prescribing um, dosages of alcohol um, to to persons to have a better healthy life. But you you do have some cannabis based medical interventions that are being prescribed. I mean, here in Minnesota. It is, pers- it is legal for those carrying uh, medical cards uh, for very specific reasons. Um, you just don't see that with, with alcohol. You don't see like a, a medical dispensary for, for alcohol at all. And I, I think that speaks volumes, at, at least to me. Um, I, I would say um, the correlation to spending debt, um, national debt, where those monies go are, are are really important to think about um, because, again, to my point that um, a lot of the people, that, if you will, and I don't mean it negatively, but the kind of the ignorance of the law um, kind of carries here too is the ignorance of the impact or where they're spending money and the situation. So we spend so, so, so much money on our um, military and again thankful for those people but I don't think that it needs to be as big of the pie and so if we wanted to really curtail that um, you know that that's an area that I would really bring down similarly uh, to the law enforcement um, aspect is that I would reinvest many of those dollars in educating people to make m- better and well-informed decisions, because I think a lack of knowledge is truly um, the United States' greatest detriment right now. Um, and, and like like you and I do when we talk, we kind of get off into the weeds about different subject matters, and, and, and that's totally fine. Um, but as far as liberty, I think that our society would understand what liberty means to them and to other people. And that's the key part that um, someone's personal liberty does not get to impede um, anyone else's. So um, someone having a gun and then becoming upset and shooting someone else uh, because they're frustrated because they think that they're defending their property, their honor, their right, that, that in many of those cases, I can't help but think that that person's personal liberty impedes the victim's uh, personal liberty from a lack of knowledge. Uh, and if they would have um, had a better education growing up, better experiences growing up, if we took dollars to invest in those people and invest in the service workers that we have, like the police, um, to be able to deescalate instances like that, um, I can't help but believe that that would have a real paradigm shift for our society. Um, Liberty would be understood that I can go and seek what is meaningful to me, but that I'm not allowed to do things that take away from other people. Um, And I think that uh, the COVID virus, I think that, um, you know, owning personal guns, things like that um, are really misunderstood because of a lack of knowledge. Uh, about what liberty entails speech. I mean, I think we should, we should talk about that just a little bit, what you're allowed to say um, and what you're not allowed to say. Um, and I can lead off with just saying that kind of the hate speech is like an easy one. Um, there was just a, a young lady in uh, Prior Lake, Minnesota that a, vi- a, a video went absolutely viral um, about her just calling uh, a peer a student, all of these names and, and explicitly telling the student to kill themselves. Um, 
and and the person um to my knowledge has not yet faced any kind of consequences for this uh but i can assure you or i feel very confident that uh, if a person of color had attacked uh, someone of Anglo descent uh, uh, virally like this, or even publicly, um, in another sense, not just a video, but like face to face or something, um, it would not have been handled the same way that um, this person would have been arrested, even though they're 16, they would have probably been put in, you know, general population. Um, and I, I think that that is a disparity that we should look at when kind of considering um, free speech. Now, I'm going to give you kind of a some time to talk about speech as well, because I think that that's a good um, aspect of the uh, kind of liberty um, idea that we haven't touched on yet. Yeah, well, and I wanted to touch on education specifically, because sure. I, I completely agree. I think, um, so our public education system specifically was, it was invented by uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, um, and I think John D. Rockefeller, essentially uh, with the goal in mind that, okay, we have a bunch of employees who have children. And when we want these employees in our factories, you know, normal working hours, Monday through Friday, we need somewhere to send these kids. And that this is probably what 120 plus years ago now something like and that so was industrial revolution public schools were founded and public schools in my opinion does a great job of teaching you a few things one um you need to be perfect at everything you do so you, you need to get a 95 percent or above and you're the best you're perfect you're great follow orders do your homework turn it in on time it, it turns you into a really good employee who can follow directions it doesn't necessarily teach you or promote creativity, independent thinking, asking why, you know, questioning things, which is really how society progresses, how we discover new things. It's, it's really sad to me because, you know, thinking about children and the fact that, you know, so in the case of bullies, um, for example, when you, when you let kids play a game a, a group of kids in many ways I remember and I, I don't know if I mentioned this when when I was growing up in our neighborhood we had a game that we'd play where uh, it was probably five to eight of us depending we called it it, it was basically the hiding game so it, it was hiding with tag and a football and we had various age ranges so I fell in the middle age range and we had we eventually developed rules because there was a kid two years older than me. He could climb up onto a deck, so no one could hit him with the football. That's that's an advantageous. There were no stairs to this deck, mind you. He just hoisted himself up. Um, so we needed to adjust rules, and it's amazing how kids can naturally sort of figure that out. That okay, there's an inequity here. This is how we balance the playing field. It wasn't equal because if we could get up there, it'd be fair but we knew we couldn't get up there. So it, it's kind of like how LeBron gets paid to play basketball. And I don't, um, although I wish <laughs> I um, and I digress again, but I, I think education is, that's something that it hasn't been reformed either. We have some alternative, you know, there are private schools, there are, there's Montessori learning, there's some different things. And um, my girlfriend taught me, so she, she was big into German in high school, taking that language, learned a lot about the culture and they have, I don't know what the name is, but this type of schooling where essentially during the day they take the kids out to the woods and the kids just play all day. And the, the boundary is if you get stuck in a tree up too high, you need to figure out a way to come down. 
So you, you sort of need to work within your boundaries, but, you know, learn within that. I think it's a really cool concept, but I think about being a kid, you're not designed to sit in a chair for eight hours a day. I know you get up, you move around, but um, there, there are also skills that we could teach that are more important than you knowing trigonometry. You know, I, I saw on LinkedIn, I think someone said another day goes by and I didn't have to use the Pythagorean theorem. And, you know, teaching people how to budget, how to spend appropriately, what happens when you have high interest debt, um, you know, taking care of your car, so forth. A number of things that I think could just be valuable life skills in addition to, as you mentioned, I, I don't, I, I looked up the prior lake situation as you were describing it. I think that's, it's absolutely horrible. Just in, I, I don't understand what has to come over a person to do that. Um, and regardless of how the result plays out, I just, I, I think that's flat out wrong and that there, there's something missing from a value perspective. Um, I, it's, it's amazing to me in 2021 that we still have, have cases of that pop up, especially in a world where we know if you say or do something, it's going to be recorded and immortalized on the internet. Um, it's just, it's horrible. And I know that doesn't necessarily speak to the handling of the situation afterwards, regardless of the race and how it would have been approached. But um, I, we're, we're missing values in this generation to some degree. I think we're probably missing more consistency. And that's what, say, Colin Kaepernick was was kneeling for, was that um, the same rules don't apply to people of color as they do to white people. And that's a great example. Uh, I think that there's just too much empirical evidence to show that um, people of color, impoverished people, um, most people that could be um, understood as in a protective class, LBGQT plus community, that they are treated differently. Um, and when presented with this empirical evidence um, that we don't get a lot of buy-in, especially from what I would consider social conservatives um, and that kind of deny it. Uh, I think it is Texas. I believe Texas, I know one state, other state has also banned critical race theory to be taught, um, but they don't really, uh, from what I gather, understand what it is. Um, so once you start kind of whitewashing things and carving um, aspects of history or knowledge out of the equation. Uh, I think that you can't help but be ignorant. Um, I can tell you my experience growing up in the educational system within Oklahoma through starting college, so kindergarten through starting college and then moving up here to Minnesota um, and finishing three degrees, um, the perspective was, was way, way different. Um, I, I feel like uh, here in, in Minnesota, it was much more, show me what you know, um, be creative with, with your ideas and concepts. But what was different, significantly more different was, um, wait, in the evidence or, or what you're using for your supporting documentation, this isn't good enough, right? You can't use Wikipedia for your, your source. Um, used, you have to use peer-reviewed data to make this particular type of argument. Um, and then also being told that you're wrong and then held accountable for being wrong. Whereas I feel maybe in the Southern states where I spent so much time, including Kansas, um, the idea was 
we can agree to disagree, but my opinion is as valid as yours, even if it's wrong, um, further the construct that, that subjective information can't be wrong or opinion can't be wrong when we, we know that's, that's so, most people would say that that's not actually true, that you can have an opinion that is wrong. And so I think that's an American construct uh, of not really admitting, willingly admit that they're wrong about something, let alone make amends for that wrongness. So during your time, Oklahoma, Kansas, I don't know what ages you're educated. Um, or through 21, 22, something. Okay. In there. Circling back to um, sort of the critical race theory aspect and whitewashing. Did you guys not learn about like Tulsa? Um, no, absolutely not. Absolutely really? Not. Okay. Absolutely not. It was so very much civil Columbus Day. Nope. Uh, this is what I would say. Um, they brushed on some of those issues, but they didn't really delve into the importance of them. Um, I would say something like the civil rights movement should not be a speed bump. That should be almost a, a given um, course. I, I would say being from Oklahoma as well, uh, the, the atrocities um, upon the indigenous people that that should if you live in that area, you should have to have that class and be able to explain, um, articulate proficiency uh, in in those areas and how those people were abused. And they're, and they're not. I mean, we of course we had Oklahoma history, but it was it was very much whitewashed. I mean, um, uh, yeah, the, the the whitewashing is a whole separate long subject. I mean, you go into any church and nobody has a Middle Eastern Jesus in Oklahoma that I know of that I ever went to had a Middle Eastern looking Jesus on their walls. They were all white guys. And so, so that, that speaks volumes, but this is the thing. I think people are okay with it because it, it is harder for them to defend that than just to accept it. They don't want to have to dig deep into that in part because again, ignorance, they don't, it's not that they, and I say ignorance just in the truest sense, just not knowing, um, what the history was or that um you know jesus was a middle eastern migrant born in september so so well you can accept that they were in the what was it essentially mesopotamia egypt it he most definitely had a different skin tone than is portrayed and you know he was roman roman empire catholicized after that fact and uh predominantly Western European sense. And that, that carried over to the West, not to say it's accurate. Um, it's it's not. Is, and that's my yeah, point. It's, that, that should just be, a, that, that should be one of those things that's not debatable. He wasn't a white guy. And if you're going to post a picture of him, make sure he's not white because it's inaccurate. Yeah. It, it, it would be, it would be inaccurate. And it, it perpetuates, in my opinion, the implicit um, or subconscious idea that you can change reality to fit your narrative. And I, I think that, that that is unfortunate. I do want to circle back just for a second to education. My kids um, are six and eight. And um, when my daughter was about to go to kindergarten, they had a big, you know, area at one of the high schools, a forum where you could talk to all the different schools and understand what their, because you have a choice, right? You, you can do some things. There's choice schools, including like Montessori, a Spanish immersion school, um, core knowledge schools. Um, so you have a choice and you can talk to them. And I would approach each of um, the principals or who, whoever happened to be there to represent their school 
with what I was offering them. I'm saying that the it's a 70, 30% split for the school. I, I expect them to educate my kids about 30% of what they need to know to get along in life. Whereas I, as their parent, own 70%. So that means all of those, how to change a tire, how to budget, um, um, emotional intelligence, a lot of 70% of that is my responsibility. Um, the 30% is the school. So I think that if parents and society were able to look back at what they contributed um, to the educational, the, the holistic education of an individual, um, I strongly doubt that they are putting in 50% and having the expectation and pointing the finger at the school system for not um, producing air quotes, if you will, um, viable citizens or citizens that act the way that they would want to. Um, and, and I think that that's unfortunate. And I think that that is a paradigm that absolutely needs to shift to something more proportional to the parents owning the greater percentage of education. I completely agree. I, I, one, I think you're a fantastic outlier and props to you and your wife for taking that position. Cause I think that's totally true. At, if you think about what school teaches you at the end of the day, it, it gives you a framework of facts that, you know, that, you know, some information that we hope broadly people know, and then hopefully along the way, you figured out a way to think a way to form an argument may or may not be the case. And, you know, you have some skills from that, but when you think about what you've really learned, you spend hopefully more of your time in the long run with your family, eventually learning from them, so forth. Um, I, I just, I think that's fantastic. And I, I completely agree. I think a lot of people send their kids to school and we're in a generation too. I don't know what you and your wife do with screen time with your kids. I know I remember cell phones. I mean, the first, I was probably 11. I got like an iPod Nano. I was, I was a little before the internet really took off. And then I look two years back, um, I have a younger brother who, uh, when Snapchat came out, just looking at the difference in our scores and the usage between yeah. what I call our generations, it's phenomenal. Yeah. You know, I, I can't get into TikTok. I can't just sit there and scroll. I'm like, there, there's no <laughs> way. I, I much more fall into the, I need to disconnect from screens. And, and we've talked about it. You and I, we, sure. we sit at screens a lot. Sure. Um, what do you guys do with screens though? I know that's, it's just a random question I have, but with your no, kids, do you limit that? So, so interesting and in, in, in relative, this is a great conversation for Liberty because like uh, Liberty depends, right? My, my son specifically, uh, almost as soon as you see him from coming off the school bus, he gets up in the morning, whatever he wants to go get on iPad and play Roblox. And if not that, then he wants to watch, you know, some YouTube personality, uh, talking about Roblox and it, it consumes him. Um, so we don't give him the absolute Liberty that he might believe he is entitled to. Um, I would say we're kind of in that 30 minutes to an hour a day, but you can earn more. That being said, the caveat is before you get your 30 minutes, um, you have to do 30 minutes worth of reading, which my wife and I, well, so for my daughter, we don't have to please her much, but my son, we do have to have him read out loud because if not, uh, he could just pick up an, a Roblox novello type of thing and just kind of look at the pictures and do that. They also have to um, practice 30 minutes worth of, uh, they both play piano. And, and so those are things that 
just to get to their 30 minutes um, or hour of usage time, they have to complete these other, these other tasks first. I would also say that that is the primary stick, if you will, whenever there's disciplinary actions is that you have to, that you could potentially lose electronics. Um, occasionally we'll start with just the iPad and then ramp it up. But I would say more times than not, we just umbrella you know, use it as electronics because we have experienced, okay, you took this one electronics. Well, here's this other electronic interface that, that, uh, that I will pick to substitute. And it's, it's a pretty elastic, if you will, kind of substitutes uh, from one screen to another. Uh, now, none of them have cell phones, but uh, there are, I would say, they're pretty, the screens are pretty interchangeable as far as it will, it will pacify their, their feeling or need for screen time. So that's kind of it. Yeah. No, that's interesting. You sound like uh, my parents probably talking about me as a teenager. <laughs> um, sure. But I personally, you know, not a parent. I think the, the screen time limit is great, especially the, the reward system you've built where, hey, you have to put in some work and hopefully along the way, because I remember as a kid growing up, I was, I loved books, tore books apart. I remember getting Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And I think I read it in like two days. Yeah. Wow. And then nice. at some point in high school, I just stopped. And then I've, I've picked it up like this year. I think I've gone through 17 or 18 books. Absolutely love nice. it again. It's, it's nice. Cause you're the latest book I got is a uh, dopamine. It's about our why are we addicted to our screens essentially and how do we get away from that um but just props to you and your wife for what you're doing with your kids um even oh. though i have I no well, leg I, to stand on to say that well what i what i want to comment on that and and i i know that you will experience this at, at some point is that when you're parenting um and when, whether that be two guys two girls or guy girl whatever um i do believe it it takes more than one person to to really raise someone, whether that's a parent and a grandparent, um, whoever that guardian is, it, it takes more than one person to really help someone be a well-rounded person and, and realize their own uniqueness and, and personality. And I say all of that because my wife and I had very different upbringings. Um, hers was much more conservative, um, much more controlled. Um, and I'm, I'm not knocking that approach, but relative to me, who, where I had almost absolute freedom to do whatever I want, um, we had some almost opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to our children. And so what we kind of have landed on is each of our kids is unique and we have to approach that different to help them realize their potential. Um, that we, she and I, from different perspectives, have a unified value system. These are the things that are important to us and that we're going to base our standards and rules on. And then the children would have to adhere to that. But the other thing is what I think is invaluable, is important, is we use, my wife and I use our own uniqueness to interact with the kids to ask why to ask them what their preferences are, to help them articulate their feelings and emotions um, when they're going through something um, so that their upbringing is not so transactional, that it is, it is something meaningful and, and has some depth to it. Um, and that's, it's been extremely rewarding. Uh, I feel like that is a great approach for anyone to, to, help raise children. Um, but that being said, you know, vocation, what type of job people have that, that 
changes the number of options that, that parents, society, community has to offer those children. And I think that that um, deserves some thought because it, it, the adage, it does take a village. So however that village is comprised. Well, and I think too, um, in many cases, and uh, not in many cases, I I think kids, like you said, it's, it's not transactional. If you have a child, you, you, people should understand and I realize there are accidents there are things that happen. You know, if, if you commit, you know, you're a married couple that say, Hey, we're going to have a kid. You are making a commitment to that individual who is really reliant on you for life, for safety, for nourishment, for shelter, et cetera. That's, that's a huge commitment that impacts society, whether you realize it or not, because you're eventually going to send that individual out as a representative of what you imparted on them. That's a, that's a huge responsibility if you think about it like that. And I think some people may take a step back. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you're having trouble as a, as partners, it's not going to get better when you introduce a third individual as a solution when they're reliant on you either. This is what I would say about that is that, that uh, and as someone who has parents and can vaguely remember or has children, but uh, vaguely remembering not having children, um, it's, it's a very introspective opportunity or exercise, if you will, to see what a version or an iteration of yourself, how that interacts in certain situations. Um, I would say after getting sober and then marrying my wife, probably having my children has been the most eye-opening um, experience to help me realize my potential. Um, they really helped guide me to curb some behaviors that, that weren't working well and they don't have to be acute. Um, they don't have to be like criminal behaviors that you want to kind of curb, um, but they do need to be behaviors in my opinion that are based on evidence and experience um, that, that work or don't. Um, so that's a liberty thing where I have the freedom and I talk to them about that, right? Uh, about, yeah, I'm, I'm the parent and, and I make some money and I have a responsibility to you um, to not just give you whatever you want. And um, my son is, is classic for saying he can't wait to be 21 so he can do whatever he wants to. Um, <laughs> he and, is and going to, he will eat those words someday because when he is 24, 25, he'll be like, gosh, it was nice being six, not having to worry about anything. <laughs> And so to be honest, we're trying to shift that paradigm at six so that he understands that being an adult has very little to do with consuming all of whatever you want to, to, to know that even when you get older and maybe it is more socially acceptable for you to experience something, that there are costs and you need to weigh weigh your decision very carefully. So doing that at six, I mean, that's, it sounds a little bit serious sometimes when I say it out loud, but it's vital to get them to, to train them to think about things, to ask them how they feel about things. Um, that, that's, that's super important because I think a lot of today's adults um, are suffering from an inability to articulate or understand um, their emotions are what's driving them and incentivizing them to do what they're doing. And a lot of people are kind of raw nerves that are just reacting. Well, I have a feeling and this is how I'm going to manifest it. And it, it's, while maybe well-intended, it's not, I think the outcome is not helping them. There's, 
there's a difference between having an emotion or having a feeling and then being emotional about it and taking an action that you may regret as opposed to trying to be objective within that feeling or emotion and coping with an emotion. And I think what you just described too, I've, I've heard a great saying before that from a parent's perspective that we took the approach that we're raising adults, we're not raising children. And that sounds a lot like what you and your wife are doing. And that that's going to have a huge impact on how they turn out. Yeah, um, yeah, we hope so. I mean, through the years of counseling myself, um, one, one kind of constant tenet is that your feelings are true. So if you're feeling angry, which is a secondary emotion, or you're feeling um, frustrated, or you're happy, joyous, all of those feelings are true. Someone can't tell you that you're not feeling that. Now, how you exhibit that, how you act on that, that is something that is your uh, person's responsibility, even in the context of liberty. You're, you're free to go out and hit somebody if you want or scream, um, but there will be some consequences for that and so that's what i think needs to be understood in the context of liberty as far as how we're feeling and what we're doing is um i mean across the board if if uh if we want to make certain drugs legal or illegal what is the outcome of that if we're going to um say certain vaccines are mandated and others aren't, what is the outcome for that? And we need to be able to just look back at that and then potentially make different decisions, say we were wrong about something or we weren't quite right, and then do something different. Just like screaming didn't help you get your way as a child, it won't help you when you're an adult. Not not really. No, you need to learn how to be a negotiator. If you can do that, you'll succeed as a child <laughs> and as an adult. Um, I did want to rope back too. So when we were talking about education, um, you mentioned Oklahoma, Kansas, so forth. They only touched on civil rights and stuff. I, you know, not, I I feel like I came out of my Minnesota education and I had a bridge at K through eight. I was public, um, high school. I was, I went to a private Catholic high school. I do feel like I came away with an understanding and an appreciation for civil rights. Maybe it's just the fact of being in Minnesota. I mean, Rochester in and of itself is a very diverse town. I went to a very diverse elementary and middle school where I was actually, um, I don't know if I can necessarily say I was the minority from a, from a race perspective, but I was, it it was closer in in that sense. Um, which I think was, it it was an awesome experience from a worldview because you just see that it's normal for, there are other people that don't look like you. Private school was a little bit different. It was lot that I was, it was much more majority set up. Um, but where I wanted to go with that is what is it week and a half or so for our listeners? I want everyone to look up Winsome Sears. So in the Virginia elections, there was a, um, she's a Jamaican immigrant, Marine vet, Lieutenant governor, first, um, first one, first black female Lieutenant governor to ever win in the Virginia election. She is a conservative, um, so even better there, you know, there can be, uh, people of any color, size, shape, feeling, et cetera, belief on either side of the aisle. But, uh, she is a bonafide badass. She, um, ran a homeless shelter, has a master's degree, raised three kids and is now serving in the Virginia legislature. So I would just encourage everyone to check that out. I, I felt it was an undercovered news story and it's, it's a great perspective to see that, um, people of color succeeding, uh, especially when they're conservative, just as an example. But um, so, so that's, just, actually, I, that, that's a good point is, is um, 
when we're kind of trying to categorize people, because I think that that is a natural inclination for people is to somehow categorize things so that you can understand it, right? Okay, this is what this means because I've put something in a category, a category. And sometimes it feels like a box, if you will. And that has the negative connotation. And, and the human brain, um, from what I understand, honestly tries to distill things down into a binary, right? And then that's, that's, we, most of us know that that's not really helpful to a certain degree um, to, to, to classify GOP versus DFL, things like that. There's just such a spectrum and the answer is it depends. Um, I would say in the context of um, this, this woman uh, winning, I think that that's, that's great that she is um, uh, has achieved all of those things and won. I think it's a great milestone. I don't want to take away from that, but I think the overarching um, classification is she's a conservative that won in a conservative state. So, so that's not completely surprising to me. Um, I would say, that, and, and not to take anything away from her at all, but I would say if you had um, likely if you had, or I, I believe I will posit this, if you had a super underqualified um, candidate on the conservative or the GOP side of a ticket, and you had an overwhelmingly um, qualified DFL candidate in that, in that situation, that more times than not in conservative states, the conservative will win because they, they hold that more important than the actual qualifications of, of the candidate. So um, I want to just be cautious with, um, and across the board, not just in conservative states, I would say that uh, the same um, as far as uh, way more liberal states as well. I just, I don't, uh, I don't like that association as much as saying that, that, that it's unique that that person potentially would have won. Um, it's just not as, as meaningful, but I am, again, uh, I think that it is a barrier that has been broken uh, in that state. And I'm very happy that, that that occurred. Hopefully that will open people up to um, greater change uh, and acceptance of others. Can I throw, so Biden won by 10 points in Virginia and Hillary won by in 2016. So I would argue against the classification of Virginia as uh, Republican. That's all. I, I wanted I wanted to fact check that one. I so, didn't want so, to play gotcha. So, so this is what I would say in that regard is those that's somewhat um, cherry picking, uh, I think of, of, I mean, because the, the main um, constant there is Donald Trump, um, I think. And so so that, that's what I didn't want to bring up as um, the Hillary example, someone who is clearly the most qualified candidate ever versus the worst candidate ever, and then what the outcome was. Um, so I would say if you look at their state legislature over the last 40 or 50 years, um, if you look at the governorship, if you look at, I mean, I, I would say that, and, and maybe it's not, maybe I'm wrong. In that well, regard. it was... It was a changing in the governor race because McAuliffe was a Democrat and then Youngkin was a Republican who took over. So, so, so I'm just I, saying, I look at the look at the state a little bit deeper, right? Look yeah, at their state I'll legislator, look at, look at their mayors, all of that kind of stuff, and look at a sample size larger than the last ten years because I think that the last ten years has been a little wild. I think you could agree with that. Um, but if yeah. you look at the, if you look at the last forty or fifty years, um, I think that there is enough data points to show that they are 
to say more generally, not absolutely, but more generally a conservative state, I think that's probably fair. Well, from 1874 to 1970, they were Democrat. From 70 okay. to Wait, 82, from what year? Republican. From what year? Eight, well, so I'm, I'm starting at 1870. I could go back further if we want. No, no, I just, this is the only thing I would say about that, that when, when looking at data points that I would be very, very careful about, especially when discerning the dichotomy between conservative and liberal is um, like the 1860s Abraham Lincoln, because that's when they really switched. Yeah. So anything at that point previous, you almost have to flip-flop them. How about 80? How about 82? So 82 is Reagan. Right. And, and I, that's why I say 40 or 50 years. I, I would just look at that. And again, I wouldn't look well, that at would, just, that would be that, that would be 40. That's why. No, no, and that's fine. This is what I would say. Just just to clarify is it, it is. And, and this exactly what you've done there is probably a situation. Uh, a book that I've brought up before is um, the death of expertise is being able to find a statistic, a statistic. That, that supports your argument versus like what I've said, this is something that can't be answered by just a Google, right? You would yeah. really need to understand and look at what has their legislature passed? What is their legislature made up of? Um, because the construct of GOP or liberal um, ideals is not just party bound. I mean, um, Joe Manchin is, he, he's, He's a classic example of someone who's he's, 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 a, he's, he's basically <laughs> conservative. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and that's fine. I, I don't want to take away from him. Um, I, I think in his heart, he's trying to do well. But, but that that's exactly my point is it's not just enough to classify someone as uh, GOP or DFL. Um, I, I still think I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that Virginia in in the general context over the last 40 or 50 years is a liberal leaning state that would well, be a it's very rough. hard pill to swallow well so one i agree i think I, i'm pulling some limiting data points to what truly liberal means you know versus relative to a california i would i would say virginia is probably far right if, no, you, no, if it, you look at that's actually another great point is the spectrum everything in my yeah. opinion and it everything um, should be put on a <laughs> spectrum of uh, to what degree, right? So if you put California on the, the, the far, far left um, and then the far, far right, uh, for me, it's got to be Texas. South Dakota, Texas. Uh, te te Texas is up there, followed probably by South Dakota. Those are some very interesting <laughs> states. Um, but, but it's where does it fall? And, and that's why I say in general, I would think Virginia leans a little more Texas than it does um, than it does probably California. And I don't know who, who that, that's another great question is who would be right in the middle. I'd like to think a place like Minnesota would be because they do have the, you know, the, the rust belt up. Um, and then, and then South of that is maybe a little bit more liberal. So the rust belt up is a little more conservative, but I don't know. That's a great question. That's, and that's hard to define too. Cause like you said, even the spectrum of what is liberal and what's right, even, sure. even within, and we're seeing that within parties right now, within yeah. the Democrat party, defining what is, what is far, far, far left right. versus what is moderate left versus what is moderate. The definition there is so subjective. And so, in so, Minnesota, so. I, I think Minneapolis and St. Paul drive a lot of it, Duluth, which is Rochester. tough because there's, there's a ton of rural population in Minnesota that, I don't know. Minnesota probably does fall a little more middle. 
So, wow. so this is what I would say about that when, when kind of thinking about a ton of the population. Uh, if you look up, and, and I think you would find that, I think Minnesota is like 5.6 million people. Is that about right? Sounds in line with what I've seen before. Yep. I'm looking so, it up. Yep. So when we say Minneapolis, St. Paul, those two cities proper, uh, maybe 700,000, right? Um, I believe that's correct. But what is the metro? The metro is four and a half million. Well, so, yeah, that's... So, so, so I if count you say, the suburbs it, in that. Exactly. So, so, I, so, I can clarify. So, so, so when we say that, because um, uh, I've heard it too often living in Minnesota, that the, the, you know, the urban areas and their liberal you know, and, and, and insert your context or your comment there. Um, but, but if you have a town that, it, or a state that is five and a half million people and 80% of them live in what is deemed as a uh, liberal or progressive environment, well, then maybe Minnesota is on the left of the spectrum, but the, the, this, this is what the state feels, not just um, to, to outline it's, it's no longer outline, right? It's, there's not a, a large population in the Rust Belt at that point that, that think this. There is lots of people and their opinions count, you know, several hundred thousand, a million. Those people's opinions count, um, but they shouldn't get the same voting power as, say, the other 80%. And that's a whole different subject that I'm sure we'll get into at a certain point. Uh, yeah, we should, we should spend an episode on that because there yeah. is an argument to be made. Well, so living document there is a discussion to be had that originally written in the constitution you need to own land and pay taxes on that land in order to have that vote so you know if 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 you know if we actually weighted votes based on the land owned metros would get decimated because you have people living in apartment complexes that have you know a, a minute portion of an acre if you uh balanced it against the land that it was actually built on well, and the same thing which that it's, which women is couldn't own land, people of color couldn't own land. So, so that's, I mean, that's actually a great uh, case for why it is a living document and why some of these things need to, um, to change relative to when they were initially written. So, yeah, I think we're kind of naturally winding down a little <laughs> bit and we, I, I know Nick and I could just speak forever and ever, but we want to kind of keep these podcasts a little bit shorter so that they're a little more digestible. And I know we kind of got off into the weeds from Liberty, um, but this is kind of how Nick and I, um, this is what we'll probably be offering is just, we have a construct uh, idea concept and then kind of talk about what we feel about that. And sometimes the conversation goes a little bit um, off point and we try to circle back and, and that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's going to give us a ton of individual episodes coming out yeah. of this. And I was literally just about to say, I think, I think we've sort of reached the end point there. Sure. Um, and I so think we any... can come back to Liberty in a more, um, a more specific context if, if we wanted to. Uh, but I, I just wanted to, thank all the listeners out there that are, that are giving our podcast a chance. And I think that really we'd like to hear what the subjects you guys would like to hear us speak about, because we're not interested. We, we have a limited um, perspective as far as kind of these white Christian um, educated heterosexual males that that is that's not the same perspective that other people have. And I, I can't speak for Nick, but I can say I am really eager to hear um, and explain uh, delve into what others are thinking, their perspective, their thought, what they think is important. 
Yeah. Well, same. I, I, we're open to guests. Um, we do have an email established. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple now. Um, we do ask, you know, if you're enjoying our content, feel free to share it with the world. However yeah. you please. Absolutely. Facebook, Twitter. Um, we're going to work on increasing our social uh, presence. And as we mentioned, we're going to start doing weekly episodes. Um, so thanks again to our, uh, to our early listeners. We appreciate you. And uh, go out there, continue to ignore the noise, and we'll be back with you next week. Have, Have a great one.